uh, members of this server, we, we've, when we first started, uh, day one, you know, maybe 30 to 50 people uh, dropped in. Here we're at the two and a half week mark or thereabouts, and now we have 900 plus people in the server. So that's amazing. Um, if you didn't know, this is the Deleuze and Gattari Quarantine Collective. We've been discussing anti-Oedipus, and we've had um, other topics adjacent to Deleuze and Gattari. About two weeks ago, we had a talk on Pierre Clastre's Society in the State. And today, we're breaking into Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. And we have a lot of experts with us, people who've been involved with this text for a while. And I'm sure we have some experts out there that we can unmute and get involved in the discussion or maybe uh, gesture towards their comments in the chat. So um, who do we have on board? So today uh, among the admins, we have Doug, we have Brooks, we have Will, we have Matt, we have Andrew. This is like romper room right now. Um, but anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Um, can I uh, hear from my admins? Just say hello, make sure I can hear you guys in here. They've got Bruce. Yeah. Hi, Doug. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Will is here. <laughs> Will's Will is here. All right, good. Um, so let's just kick it off. Um, I'm going to be playing the, the role of host or moderator for this discussion and directing questions at other admins and then, of course, jumping in in the meantime. But, of course, we want to hear your important opinions and uh, connections that you're making with the text, especially as it relates to Deleuze and Gattari. Uh, so anyway, uh, first things first, maybe Matt, you can start off. Um, who is Mark Fisher? Why is he important? Why should we pay attention to him? And um, what makes him the reason that we're all assembling here today? So um, Mark Fisher was a uh, British sort of uh, philosopher, cultural critic, um, and in many ways, most importantly, a blogger. Um, that's, that's a strange thing is that he, um, although he published a few um, fairly short books, a lot of what he wrote um, was really on his uh, blog, K-Punk. Um, and he kind of popularized a lot of these sort of different uh, blogger spheres, really, which which are still going today, where a lot of different people have uh, started these communities thinking about all these big ideas, uh, a lot of which were rooted in Dulles and Gattari, who was a, were big influences on, on Fisher's thinking. Um, I think one of the reasons why he's important today is that, um, particularly in capitalist realism, um, what Fisher does is he... He finds a way of communicating in a very accessible way um, the ideas of a whole range of often very difficult thinkers um, and turns them to use um, in a range of different very important uh, contexts or issues we, we face today. Everything from um, the mental health crisis to uh, education, to um you know just the marketplace in general um and so i think part of why he's worth reading is the the way in which he just he runs through this this, this huge range of different ideas and thinkers and just puts them to work at these issues which face us today i think um i would say just and i'm going on a bit, but just to say up front one of the things to bear in mind with capitalist realism in particular um, is that this was a book, in a way, written for the students that he was teaching. So there is a, there is also a very sort of um, uh, pedagogical level to to what he what he actually writes in 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 this book in particular. 
Um, so his thoughts and his ideas go beyond this one book, but it's meant to be a kind of educational text, I think, kind of introduction. Hello, is this cool. great Uncle Dave? I mean, Dave, Uncle Dave. Oh, hold on. There's Uncle me. Dave in the background. <laughs> let's uh, let's actually mute him right now. Yeah, I'm I'm running around and randomly uh, muting. Yeah, I think he was he was making noise yesterday in our discussion as well. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, well, anyway, I'll direct the next question at Will. Um, you had mentioned when we were discussing an admin chat that we should not make a difference uh, between Fisher's philosophy on the one hand and his pedagogy on the other, and I was hoping that maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think Mark Fisher does a good job in this text and in many interviews and uh, lectures that he gave because he was very, 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 very active on the conference circuit, particularly with the remnants of the CCRU and uh, the series of conferences that they launched in the late 90s. And he talks extensively about the role of teachers in any given societal structure. Um, But what he does is he kind of provides his students and his readers with Examples of extraordinarily complex concepts like the Panopticon in Foucault or the Control Society in Deleuze. And he boils them down to digestible uh, selections of text understood through the context of the teacher. Um, So rather than engaging in this long genealogical explanation of what the Panopticon is, instead, he will try to describe what it is like to to teach a class uh, in university with a series of administrators who are all also under surveillance by a series of individuals who work for the university. But more importantly, all of the examples that he brings up about anhedonia, uh, interpassivity, um, these are all experiences that he's had as a lecturer, as an instructor, and as a professor. So when we look at what constructed Mark Fisher's worldview, I just don't believe it's possible to separate it from uh, what the state of public education is in the Western world. And obviously, uh, comparing the United States to the UK, these are two very, very disparate um, educational structures, but there are kind of overlaps. And I'm excited to get into particularly these examples about students struggling uh, to, to, to jump into Nietzsche and the role that um, the capitalist realism plays in kind of Uh, the complication that arises for teachers having to deal with students who um, can't, quote unquote, pursue anything but pleasure. Yeah, I have an itchy trigger finger when it comes to the politics of education, and Mm -hmm. I can't wait to get to that section. (laughs) But before we do that, just quickly add something there. Oh, please, please do. Sure. Uh, So one of the just something to bear in mind is that so for Mark as an individual, as a person, he actually spent relatively a relatively short period of his life, I think, as a university professor. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of his time as an as a sort of publishing, writing, uh, speaking adult, you know, as as a thinker, was actually spent in um, further education colleges in of the course. UK. Um, and he had a really really tough time, sort of. Um, uh, finding a place in this traditional sort of academic hierarchy in particular. Um, and he obviously, he never really had any interest in that in the first place, but it's probably worth bearing in mind um, in terms of his pedagogy, but that um, a lot of his experience was, was a mixture of sort of um, 
younger adults and and older adults um, and not a specifically um you know university student uh, audience uh, so that's, that's something to bear in mind so before we jump into these to these kind of more um biographical and obviously more complex questions about fisher's work because uh, we'll get to kind of what influences him what 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 cinema uh, what music i think music plays a really important role in understanding uh the, the several concepts that Fisher brings into his uh, corpus. But just to begin with, because of the topic of this conversation, uh, Matt, can you just tell us what is capitalist realism? Like if you could boil it down into a sentence. So it's a little bit more complex than this, but I think if you can boil it down, it's, it's it, what he would, I think it's the, the pervasive sense that capitalism is really the only option. Uh, and it's almost the impossibility of thinking beyond or after capitalism. It's, it's the, the classic phrase in, in British politics, you know, there is no alternative, right? Um, and so when he talks about capitalist realism, that, that's most of what he's talking about, is it's, it's a sort of social, cultural um, feeling or force of, uh, of repressing the possibility of anything beyond or outside capitalism. That's right. Um, the question that I was going to to ask is, is the statement that's brought to the fore by Mark Fisher, uh, which he attributes uh, either to Jameson or Zizek, which is, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, so maybe uh, now that we've sort of covered the, the general ground here, um, what are some of the, the salient features of a capitalist realism? Like, what does that world look like? Um, what do the subjects, the political subjects of that time look like? What's the sort of effective dimension uh, in terms of people's emotional attitudes and, and so forth? And maybe I'll give that to Will. You can start off with that. Yeah, one. so I think that then we can start jumping into particular concepts. Uh, and the first will be reflective impotence which is uh, at least it's something that he observed in the generation or one of the generations that he was teaching in, um, in, uh, in his time as, as a professor, um, which is this, this inability to find a mechanism of opposition. Um, and I think one good example of this is the rejection of any sort of protest. So uh, in his essay, Post-Capitalist Desire, Mark Fisher brilliantly tags this one moment in, in British television. And obviously, like, I am not from there. So if I get any of these moments wrong, anybody from the region, please correct me. Um, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> we're, we're on we're on television. A series of, of commentators were discussing um, a, a I think it was a walkout or a protest where one one of the uh, one of the commentators said, well, of course, they want to protest capitalism, but only if they can also buy a Starbucks coffee. You know, right next to the protest, there was a line around the corner uh, into into the coffee shop. So you can't have it both ways. You can't both enjoy um, you can't both enjoy a coffee and desire an alternative to capitalism or or a significant reform of the status quo. Um, And I think that these sorts of um, these sorts of moments greatly impact the kind of intellectual paths that students have to when it comes to rejecting the status quo, when it comes to finding areas of significant reform, when it comes to uh, 
to establishing alternatives. Uh, there's like a constant reinforcement of the commodity and the 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 kind of the realism of that commodity, um, which I think Fisher finds is manifesting in a sort of emotional uh, reflective uh, reflexive impotence towards any sort of 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 protest and. There's sort of this rejection of of that on the basis that, well, of course, they're doing this. They're merely emulating, simulating the, the students of 1968. What did that do? What does that mean? Um, so I, I think this is where we start to see sort of it manifesting culturally and then emotionally in the students as a result, because this is the milieu in which they grew up um, in kind of the um, the highly. Uh, security uh addled um and financially fraught time that was defined by 2009 2010 so uh so matt i live in the states i know what things are like here i have been to certain protests that have been highly organized permits but not even just permits but where even the organizers impose rules for the protesters um what does this look like in the uk in terms of what 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 sort of protest uh, um, it, the, the, looks the like, sort of, or yes, and like uh, the, this notion that like, hey, Ed, what if everybody shows up for a protest? I mean, is the is it the same in terms of like, hey, is there a line around the Starbucks, or does it seem to be an exercise in futility? Or it, well, I'm curious what the attitude towards protest is it, where you're from. Um, this, this may be a, a sort of non-answer, um, but I think I think it's a bit of both. Um, because particularly since the vote to leave the European Union, um, you know, regardless of how, as a socialist or whatever you, you may feel about the European Union, there has been a huge sort of surge in uh, public activism, protests, um, and so on. But I think there's always been, and I think I think I've always felt this in myself as well. This sort of this this reflexive impotence as well, um, where a lot of people thought that you know, as much as we you know, hate this uh, this focus plan or whatever, and other issues as well, like austerity, uh, opposing cuts, and so on. Um, you know, even if we turn out a protest, what does it actually do, right? Um, looking at the G20 protests and uh, Occupy Wall Street and so on, you know, what are we going to achieve this time? And I think um, after the heyday of some of these protests and given how little it achieved, um you know, to be a little bit pessimistic, I think that's only really um, increased, right? Um, this sense that, you know, you can turn out as many people as you like to protest or, or to, to the movement, but um, uh, there is still, I think, a pervasive feeling that uh, it's not enough. Um, can, can, can I bring in a selection of the text really quick? Because I think it ties in really well with what you're saying. Yeah, please. Sure. Yeah. So uh, this is on page 16. Uh, right at uh, the top or towards the top. Uh, a moral critique, uh, a moral critique of, capitalism of capitalism emphasizing the ways in which it leads to, leads to suffering only reinforces capitalist realism. Poverty, famine, and war can be presented as an inevitable, inevitable part of reality, while the hope that these forms of suffering could be eliminated is easily painted as naive utopianism. Um, and I think that this ties in well with 
the response to protests against uh, parts of the WTO, uh, Occupy, um, and kind of the 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 nature and kind of the the broad thinking of these different groups, right? Occupy Wall Street was by its very nature unorganized. I was pretty young when Occupy was occurring. I think I was in eighth or ninth grade. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent of that is in uh, Europe, but I, I was quite young. And what I remember was all of my my teachers and instructors kind of laughing it off as sort of this anarchistic, uh, utopian, um, theoretical nightmare where no one actually knew what their end goals were. So what the, the appropriate response is, uh, is to write it off and to embrace uh, to embrace a more uh, incremental approach to solving these issues that in fact, these issues can be are not inherent to capital, but can be solved through it, um, which I think is is why Fisher sees these sorts of critiques of capital, these ones that are overly broad, that don't have specific political goals, to to be a little bit um, detrimental and almost even pernicious to the more targeted modes of critique and of protest. Um, because if we look at the success of Occupy, the, the goal of Occupy was to to dismantle like Wall Street. It didn't occur. Um, yeah. So in the face of failure after failure after failure, um, uh, I think that this this engenders a sort of impotence. Uh in clusters of, of students, activists who would otherwise find themselves either on the left or sympathetic to the left, but can't because they simply don't see um, the critique as being significant or targeted enough. Here's a question that I have <clears throat> while, you, while you were both talking. It made me think that um, the critique of protests is often to be uh, presupposed as ineffective or goals are not um, set or there lacks organization. Often just on the face of it, like when, when Occupy was forming, I, I was a bit older at the time, maybe my late 20s. And what I noticed was um, there were people who didn't engage intellectually with it at all. They took it, you know, took whatever they saw in the news at face value and basically without investigating what Occupy was all about, they would just, you know, just from the armchair say, ah, that that protest, those guys, they don't have any goals. Nothing's going to happen. It almost seems if this hopelessness is ingrained into us such that when we see the image of a, uh, of a protest and all the signifiers that go with it, that there's this immediate reaction that nothing is going to happen. Um, yeah, um, if, I, if I can interject here. Um, so I think I think. Broadly, Mark Fisher would align with the kind of critique you find in um, Inventing the Future by uh, Alex Williams and Nick Cernicek. Um And their basic idea, it's quite a sophisticated and pretty rigorous critique, really, whether you agree with it or not. Um, what, what they say in that book is that there were a whole range of problems with um, what they call folk politics. Um, and one form of this folk politics is a reliance on um, simultaneously uh, horizontal organization, um, you know, in, in this kind of anti-authoritarian, you know, pseudo-anarchistic 
sense. Um, that's a really big thing. Um, but also, you know, as we saw, well, I, I was a little bit young at the time, you know, but in the Occupy Wall Street protests, that um, if you if you refused to articulate any specific demands, then the idea I think was that that would neutralize the ability of uh, Wall Street or capitalism to uh, refute those demands, right? Um, but I think for Mark Fisher, and I think I'm really thankful that Will brought up that quote because that's been a huge thing for me. Um, as long as the critique of capitalism remains on the moral level, it never really moves beyond capitalism. That's really the problem, right? Because if the moral problem of capitalism is that, for example, we have uh, greedy, avaricious bankers, right? Um, if that's the problem, then presumably at least one solution to that might just be to replace the bad bankers with good bankers, right? Uh, but of course, then you're, yeah. no, long, you know, you're no longer interrogating the, the systemic problems within capitalism, which give rise to, to these issues. Um, and that's where I think there's one of these links with Fisher's writing and his thinking and this sort of uh, maybe left accelerationist uh, perspective as well where the alternative to capitalism for Mark Fisher has to go beyond what ca capitalism is capable of providing to us. And it has to be an alternative vision, which is at least as sophisticated as the system which we already live under, I think. Well, here's a question. You, you brought up the concept of a molar protest. And of, of course, you're invoking Deleuze and Gattari's uh, concept of molarity and molecularity. Um, I'd like to bring in Deleuze at this time. I'm thinking about his essay, uh, May 68 did not take place. In that essay, he suggests that the revolutionary aims were not achieved, yet something did happen where a certain standard was set. And the French people at that time and European people at large who engaged in the protest had decided for themselves, we have this new standard and we're not going back to the old way. Um, clearly, Deleuze's assessment seems a little bit more uh, hopeful than than Mark Fisher's assessment. Do you think in view of what is happening now? Uh, so it, this is a sort of package question. Um, has Mark Fisher's critique aged well in the sense that he's still correct? Um, or do you think that social conditions have been unsettled somewhat where maybe there's a gap um, you know, considering what's happening happening with the coronavirus, or is there a way in which we can uh, undertake some sort of praxis uh, that can get us to a new standard in these times? And are any of those solutions forthcoming? Is it okay if I just? I know I talked quite a bit there. Is it okay if I jump in first, just because? Um, sure. Mark Fisher was obviously talking about the country I was born and raised and live in. Um, I think so. I'm obviously. I think most people here are aware that over the last uh, month or two, we've had in the Labour Party here um, a leadership election, right? As Corbyn lost pretty uh, pretty badly in, in December, and we've been electing a new leader after he stepped down. And the interesting thing, and I've been digging through all these polls and surveys as much as I can, um, a significant number of people who supported Jeremy Corbyn uh, both in 2015 when he was elected as leader um, and again I think it was 2017 when he was re-elected against a challenge um, ended up voting for Keir Starmer our new uh, current leader 
Um, and I'm still trying to figure out how exactly I, I, I think and feel about about all of that. But I don't think it would be unfair to say that this is a kind of return of capitalist realism, right? Um, I think I, my feeling as a member of, of the Labour Party, I've been there since 20, uh, early 2015, is that there is a kind of defeatedness here in Britain on the left, um, uh, a kind of uh, a sense that we now need to, you know, and this is again what Fisher would put it, put it, phrase it in, to, to readjust our goals in light of the reality principle, right? Um, that uh, we went a bit too far, that we, um, you know, didn't properly account for what was realistically possible or whatever, you know, and now we need to step back and uh, and, and, and moderate ourselves. Um, and I think that's a big part of where the left is right now in Britain. I think one thing that that showed, that, that le- uh, election of, of Starmer showed, was that actually the, um, the proportion of British society, even in, even in the Labour Party, <laughs> was much uh, softer, I suppose, in their support of the left than many of us had uh, a thought beforehand, actually. So I think it's almost a return of capitalist realism right now here in Britain, where the left has kind of readjusted our desires in light of this you know, so-called reality principle. Um, yeah, that's, that's my feeling right now as a sort of a, uh, an active member of the Labour Party right now. I feel like this is what's going on, even though I'm not a citizen of the U.S., I feel like this is what's going on in the U.S. with uh, Bernie's defeat, should I say, right? Maybe yeah, some of you guys will have, yeah. I, I, I actually, uh, I will say from, for, from someone who's been working as a Bernie victory captain and, and doing phone banks and all that fun stuff for him, um, I would say that actually it's the opposite with the Bernie crew. What he reached yeah. out to is very unique. Uh, there's there's a lot of disenchanted doomer types on the left mm-hmm. because of Bernie. I will not say otherwise. Of course, there are. Just at me next time. Yeah, it's uh, no, it's it's what he reached out to that I find my most hope in is actually poor immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I had to stop because I've been doing this and doing work. I had to stop doing a lot of work with. Um, uh, the campaign. And so I've been reached out to, and it's by 20 year old girls who work on farms. Uh, and it's this really strange, deeply blue collar immigrant worker class who are now really, really radicalized. And it's pretty amazing. So just a, just a little bit of hope in there. Uh, they look at things very much at, as needing to be major changes. So just a positive note. Did anyone else want to weigh in before we shift gears on on Mark Fisher a little bit? Yeah, I, I think when I, I think we'd, we could probably move forward to the next concept. I, I'm just going over the May 68 essay again. Uh, and I think that this is a decent where we are is a decent jumping point into Mark's use of the or Mark Fisher's use of the uh, the control society, because I think it is a little unique and maybe Matt can speak to it. To the control society. Yeah, yeah, if not, I, you know, whoever, whoever feels comfortable, uh, you know. Well, here's one thing that I heard. I heard that the UK has more surveillance or London has more surveillance cameras per square kilometer. Notice I use kilometer there than any other major city in the uh, in in the world. Um, what? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, so one of the one of the strange things about this is so um, it came out. I think it was yesterday, the day before. Um, Reuters published a really big, in-depth article, really long uh, article, about um, the government's response to coronavirus. And what they found was that um, one of the reasons why we were so late to implement a severe social distancing um, lockdown policy was it was nothing to do with science it was actually a political calculation that the government did not believe that the british public as a sort of you know uh, brave freedom loving you know uh, pub going public or whatever you know would ever actually submit to um having to stay at home for a month two months whatever um and i think that was a really interesting moment for me um, in terms of uh, what it says about uh, ideology today in, in, in Britain, how it impacts actual uh, politics. Um, because there's this idea that the public is this sort of freedom-loving, uh, you know, uh, polity. But, you know, as you find in Deleuze and Gattari as well on, you know, on the postscript for societies of control, um, it, it's not really the case. And surveillance and monitoring and control, I think they're, they're, they're changing in a much more subtle way these days. Um, and I don't know if we're quite ready for it. Um, I think in particular here in the UK, we have a very very difficult relationship with you know these two supposedly opposing concepts of freedom and security um and i'm not really sure where that's where that's going to go i'm afraid yeah um if i could jump in a bit too about um the societies of control i like how you brought up the sort of large scale what the the government does sort of control but i also like looking at um we might get into chapter four the sort of consumerism side of Society of control and the way ads are sort of using collected data so that it's sort of similar to Deleuze. I remember, I think it was yeah. Andrew sent me a video about the way a highway is positioned for society of control, where it feels like you're in control driving where you are, but you're still on these roads. Right. You're cutting out of it. In the um, consumer society through apps and data collection, we have this same feeling of freedom where we can click on choose what advertisements we want to see. We get to choose which videos on YouTube we click on, but it's still very carefully selected based on data and algorithms collected yeah. by corporations. So they still direct us in this very sort of, was it Matt that was just speaking, in this very technical sort of way that's very difficult to see. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great section to bring in, particularly given the fact that uh, that the 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 introduction written to uh, Mark Fisher's dissertation actually spends a lot of time on that very quote um, about the illusion of of freedom on this open highway. Um, right, and that's yeah. one of the biggest. Uh... It's, it's definitely one of the biggest elements of the society of control yeah. that it needs yeah. to have kind of this this um, this perception of openness in order to function proper, uh, uh, properly, which I think is a decent way to extend on the society of discipline. Because uh, the society of discipline uh, 
works kind of in the opposite direction. It well, needs one, to, one of the one of the beauties of this, and I, I, I've liked this section, but I loved it even more after listening to a Citations Needed wonderful podcast on Porch Pirate Panic, I think was the name of the episode, where they actually talk about, no, London doesn't have the most cameras. It's actually the U.S. Uh, because the way that cameras function is London has more that are installed by the government completely. That's kind of the standard for looking at CCTV statistics globally. But when you actually bring in Amazon Ring and other doorbell apps and other apps that we've installed ourselves and cameras we've installed ourselves that are actually fully tied into police departments, yeah. it's a little more terrifying. And so it's this uh, ideology yeah. we have around the, uh, oh, we're, this is my Ring doorbell and all my neighbors have Ring doorbells. It's not the government that installed it. Sure, they're subsidizing it and they're the ones who sold it to us and they're tied into the same systems and they're able to use it anytime they want. But it's technically not the same thing as surveillance. That happens in Britain too, though, certainly. Right? It's it's fascinating. Uh, the, I'll, I'll post a link to the study that was done that had the U.S. at the most CCTVs per person, which is incredible. It varies by the city a lot also. Yeah, I mean, it, it very much depends where you go, at least here in the UK. And I I don't doubt that, that London is one of the most um, sort of surveyed cities, you know, in the Western world. Um, I spent, but I spent four years at university in New York, uh, in the north north of England, um, and there it's very it's very different. Um, so I, I you know I, I can I can simultaneously believe that the UK is less monitored overall, but that London itself might be more. Um, but there's a debate happening right now, you know, society control um, in the UK about how how the government can implement um, tracking mechanisms like those which have been used in South Korea in terms of monitoring the spread of the viruses, right? Um, in the same way that they were debating whether the public would ever accept uh, you know, self-isolation, they're now internally debating about the possibility of leaning on you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, whatever, to uh, get access to data to monitor the, 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 the movements of people they suspect have contracted coronavirus as well. And in the first time in a long time, uh, Google and Apple are actually teaming up to release an app and have their servers connect uh, yeah. all because of this. No, and, and like I, think the, again. I think this ties in well to um, a user that, that brought in, I'm going to quickly find their name, uh, God of Discord with a series of O's and zeros, so I'm not going to try to <laughs> figure that out, uh, said that we should bring up a Gambon state of exception, which is that in, in moments of exception, states and, and um, social entities move outside the bounds of their conventional limitations to say, okay, well, coronavirus is clearly an exception. We have to operate outside of our normal procedure. Um, and then, of course, a gamut's position is that often once those expansions are made, there's never an appropriate contraction. Um, so, yeah, no, I just wanted to say that I, I thought that that addition in, in the chat was was helpful. And I think it's a good way to, to discuss sort of the almost amorphic uh, role that, that governments play in post-industrial society because uh, their relationship with um, non-state economic entities is actually much more fluid and complex uh, than merely there is the public state sphere and then there is the market sphere. And I think that's proving to be the case now. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up um, Agamben because obviously he's been, uh, let's say, put, put through the ringer over the last <laughs> few oh, weeks. Yeah. 
Um, but actually, so I wrote my master's thesis on Carl Schmitt. Oh, cool. And a lot of what Agamben's doing is he's basically combining um, Foucault and uh, Schmidt at the same time, and we work in interesting ways. And really briefly, the reason why I think Agamben actually has got a point on this one um, is that, so for, for Schmidt, one of his points is that um, the thing about liberal democracy is that it always harbors the possibility of dictatorship for him. Um, what happens is that the state of uh, exception or uh, you know, it sort of arises. And the whole point of it is that you can't account for it in advance, right? Um, by definition, it's this um, yeah. you know, emergency surprise situation. So there's no actual way of, in advance, making sure that you have the appropriate constitutional mechanisms to you know, uh, elect a dictator or whatever, right? And so he says there's always this possibility built into it. And then what happens is that um, Agamben sort of uh, builds on this to say that that's correct. But then what he sees after, for example, 9-11, he's got a very famous book on 9-11. He says what happens is this state of emergency, which the government uh, invokes in order to suspend the normal order of things, um, actually becomes the new normal. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, and in particular, particularly for something like coronavirus, right? And it's something I wrote about um, about a week ago, I think. Um, because it's invisible, right? It's, it's sort of, um, it could be within any one of us or between us, whatever, right? Um, there's no point at which you can really definitively say that the threat is over in the same mm -hmm. way that after 9-11, the war on terror was just this ongoing self-perpetuating war, right? Yeah, so it becomes sort of an onto-political, to, to steal a term from Brian Masumi, that's sort of yeah, always in, in existence, always perpetuating, always in a state of kind of um, malignant progression. Um, you just can't determine uh, whether things are subsiding, right? Where if a state right has, is expanding territory, let's say tomorrow uh, Russia expands territory somewhere, the world, if it's going to respond, would respond in could theoretically push it back, but instead now we have this unending fear of of abnormal uh, asymmetrical conflict with states. So it's no longer just did uh, did the British and the French fight over a six hundred plot of land, and once that territory has changed, uh, the the threats now are these ongoing possibilities rather than acute moments of explicit violence or acute moments of, of determined illness. There's something that's uh, interesting to me that I wanted to bring into the discussion here, which is, uh, you know, sort of the fact that, yeah, we're talking about this kind of ratcheting up of the state and its reach into uh, the, the life of, the, of its subjects. Um, uh, so it's interesting to me how it's this ratcheting up. So there's always this limit too on how much it will ratchet up in each instant. And uh, I'm curious yeah. if anybody has the insight about what sort of the mechanisms are, you know, constraining this process here. So for for Schmidt, at least the whole the whole problem is that there is no limit, right? There is no way of a priori constraining any of this. That's that's his sort of critique of liberal democracy is that. Um, regardless of how many precautions you put in place, the whole problem of this state of exception or emergency, or whatever, is that um, you can't actually prepare right, for it. Right, but that's that's yeah. ideology. That's ideology of liberalism. But, but, sure. So I but guess what's the actual the actuality is 
there are constraints. So, yeah. well, I, I would I would challenge that by saying that oftentimes these constraints are overruled in states of exception. So this week, William Barr sent uh, sent several uh, DOJ attorneys to, to to district courts to file for um, the ability to um, to alter sentencing to to confine individuals who are violating. Uh, state orders without proper charging documents. Um, so, uh, you know, these, I guess, these I guess what exist- I'm trying to point out is it seems to me like what we're seeing here in this phenomenon is that there's this sort of third entity. There is us, yes. there are the agents of the States and there's this thing that they are taking advantage of these historical mm-hmm. events mm-hmm. to pull more power out of. And what is this third thing and how, how, yeah. Well, what is the surplus power? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a good question. Uh, well, I, I, I think, think one of the things that we're kind of talking around here is the conditioning of the subject under advanced capitalism, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe that's a good way to break into our next uh, topic here, which uh, has to do with um, Fisher's notion of depressive hedonia. And uh, yeah. I just want to celebrate this portion of the text because. For me, it's a vindication of philosophy against uh, the mainstream of psychology and health, because Fisher here, he, he's creating this concept and he's bringing in politics. He's bringing in psychology. He's bringing in Deleuze and Gattari all together to formulate a theory of uh, of pleasure in our society. And I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I know we have a lot of teachers, certainly have a lot of students out there. Um, to what extent has uh, Fisher's concept of depressive hedonia, what he says about uh, mental health and, and so forth, and especially the very interesting thing he says about the bipolarity of the interiority of capitalism? Um, how have you uh, recognized this or, or made notice of this? Can, can, can we uh, review the concept first? Sure. Um, so the, the notion of depressive hedonia is this, and um, maybe I'll just uh, read it right from the text. Yeah, I was about to say there's a great. Yeah. He says, many of the teenage students I encountered seem to be in a state of what I call depressive hedonia. Um, and he's just going on. De- depression is usually characterized as a state of anhedonia. But the condition I'm referring to is constituted not by an inability to get pleasure so much as by an inability to do anything else except pursue pleasure. Uh, Along with that, there is the sense that something is missing, but no appreciation that this mysterious missing enjoyment can only be accessed beyond the pleasure principle. So that's the sort of concept in a nutshell. I mean, one of the ways that we, one of the examples we can bring in are, I mean, is just online culture. How many apps can we just cycle through all day? I look at my young nieces, they're on TikTok, they're on YouTube, back on TikTok. And and I have see them just get exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's crazy though, that they're, but with, that with that are, you know, like all of us who grew up in the internet age in, in kind of the app world are already contributing passive labor. Like we're children, we're babies and we're watching, you know, uh, Teletubbies and we're creating kind of immense value by contributing, uh, data and like my foot, my proverbial footsteps online are a product to be, to be packaged, analyzed, and then sold. Mm -hmm. Um, which is discord which is discord absolutely. makes it very explicit that it's made for gamers right <laughs> <laughs> well don't worry <laughs> we've gamified discussion yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well games of a real underclass of course yeah. what's that i love games of a real underclass right yeah. Yeah, the, game, 
Um, Wait, I, I was actually of... I was actually excited that the server had a bot with like levels and leveling up for a minute there. So yeah, no, the game was pretty <laughs> guitar. But you were about to say something. Uh, the, the that was point right. about uh, producing and consuming at the same time. That's yeah. Art and Negri's assembly. They call mm-hmm. it pro prosumer. Yep. Um, and in one of my papers, I made the argument just like you're saying about how because we have this what Mark Fisher calls cyberspatial capital. Which mm-hmm. sort of addicts its users. I mean, ask any app developer. And yeah, and I think I think there's this great sentence uh, about the transition from discipline to control societies on page 25 uh, at the beginning of the paragraph where. Mark Fisher writes, if the figure of discipline was the worker prisoner, the figure of control is the debtor addict. Cyberspatial capital operates by addicting its users. William Gibson recognized that in Necromancer when he had Case and the other cyberspace cowboys feeling the insects under the skin strung out, uh, strung out when they unplugged from the Matrix. So um, obviously pulling in pop culture in a very kind of in the only way that he can, I actually prefer the way Mark Fisher pulls in pop culture to the way Zizek. I, I, I prefer it over the way Zizek does. Uh, it's one of my the reasons why I, I push people who are just starting to read kind of anti-caplet towards Fisher and away from uh, Zizek. But yeah, I think this transition from the worker prisoner to the debtor addict um, is essential in the way Mark Fisher sees uh, societies, uh, the society of control. Um, manifested and since uh, subsumed by the cyberspatial. I really wonder Can I have um, a potential devil's advocate argument here. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Well, so I, I, I love the, the text was mostly really great. I think one thing that I struggled with slightly was there is an aspect of it, and maybe this is just his style, that kind of borders on, I think, what I used to find fatiguing about Frederick Jameson as well, is that there's this kind of like postmodernist hand-wringing thing where it's, uh, you know, it's the, everything is out of our control. The whole society is overdetermined. Everyone acts, you know, as a robot. We're all zombies. You know, like it's this kind of subtly libertarian argument. I know that's reductionist. Yeah, no, they're, they're, the they're, one, they're, the one, they're, they're, the one there thing I do struggle with is in this, in there's actually, and I brought this up before, is that there's this thing about technology, which it's insightful, but that at the same time, it can be debilitating a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of goes back to the old Benjamin work of art and the mechanical age of reproduction argument of how, what, what maybe these new technical forms actually bring with them new kinds of subjectivity and new experiences of aesthetics and all these things at the same time. And I, I always go back to, I remember always taking that as a kind of like a holy grail of theory of like, yeah, Benjamin, the work of art, this is like the classic thesis is bulletproof. And I remember reading uh, something that Jacques Rancière had written about Benjamin, kind of pointing out, I think, a rather obvious point, which is that what, well, he was kind of critiquing the idea and saying, what is the actual argument you're making here? Are you saying that sort of like in its structure and in, in these forms, simply introducing maybe into losing arguments, like just a new machine inherently with it is just going to bring this whole new way of being. And there's this kind of narrative in these postmodernist texts where it's like, you know, with technology and the internet and, and all these different things, you know, my students can't concentrate their, their subjectivity is split. They're all, they all have ADD. And I wonder, maybe it's, maybe it's a niggling kind of non-point, but part of me is almost like, I think the Rancière move that he made with that critique was to say, okay, well, it's not just, it's not simply that, you know, the printing press made a new kind of person possible or just, you know, introduced a whole new subjectivity into the world, but that these new technologies are kind of 
accelerations of existing trends or things that are happening in capitalism, right? Like there is no, it's not that Facebook alienates us because it's Facebook, but it's because, you know, capitalism itself is an alienating thing. It alienates everything that it comes into contact with. So like I, maybe, maybe that feel, maybe that yeah, might be I a mean, bit, I, I, a I think I understand <laughs> that critique because I think I came away with that when I was first exposed to cultural theory from the late sixties and seventies. I mean, when I, when I initially exposed myself to, to discipline and punish, I, I found myself kind of profoundly depressed, um, but with the state of, of, of structured, organized society. But, uh, what I will say is this, um, to take it back to even the most traditionalist Marxist, uh, viewpoint to go all the way back to, to Sartre. And I know we've had this conversation a few times that the, the role of critique is defined to, to, to create as thorough an understanding of the systems of, of, of control, of discipline, whatever you want to, to say uh, we exist or don't exist within at any given time, um, is to find those, the, the, just how contingent uh, these realities are. Because if we don't determine what it is that is operating like if we don't have a thorough enough critique i don't think any construction we provide on top of it can be sufficient uh i think that comment has been made before uh about kind of the um the 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 um about the 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 pessimism i you know there are a lot of professors who 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 are reflectively just don't like Foucault to lose because they see they see these sort of critiques as pes- fundamentally pessimistic I don't see this as the case and if you could give me two seconds to find it in capitalist realism there is a great uh, there is a great um, there is a great selection about the importance of Foucault Deleuze and and these other critics um, what I would like, just like to add to yeah. what you've been saying is that I feel there is a difference, a big difference actually, between the hopelessness of a person who quickly dismisses a revolution and the hopelessness, if we decide to deem it this way, of a person who has indulged himself in an in-depth critique. Mm-hmm. Because these two hopelessnesses, right, if we use this plural form and if we identify hopelessness being on both sides, actually deals in both ways. One is strictly anti-revolutionary, while the other, I would say, has no other outcome but the revolution. Yeah, and I think this is the page 17 section. I think somebody's a little bit ahead of me. Uh, Any number of radical theorists from Brecht uh, through uh, to Foucault and Badiou have maintained uh, emancipatory, have maintained emancipatory politics must always destroy the appearance of a natural order, must reveal what is presented uh, as necessary and inevitable to be mere contingency, just as it must make what is what was previously deemed to be the impossible seem attainable. So I think even uh, how I see these theorists operating is showing just how uh, like there's an aspect of materiality to to the current state of affairs. So what we have to do is we have to contrast between individuals like um, I know we bring them up a lot, but individuals like Jordan Peterson. Oh, there we go. It's on a it's on a wall. Uh, it's very cool. Um, between like figures, but like Jordan Peterson and Michel Foucault, um, and and put these two visions in direct conflict with one another um, because. 
capitalism relies both on this concept of, of self-emancipation, right? Like you can become anything, you can do anything with also on the other end, there are just people who are smarter, right? You, you, everyone has that friend who is, or maybe they don't, but I unfortunately have like a lot of friends who are, are very deep into kind of the business ecology and they're, and they're very, 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 very committed to the concept of that. Well, billionaires are just fundamentally different people. Uh, producers are just fundamentally different people. They're, they're just inherently more intelligent. We have this hierarchy within capital of the individuals who work much harder, who who achieve more. And it's not a, a, a question of station or, or of situation as it relates to a particular system, but instead, like we exist in this hierarchy um, and we, we you know, have to orient ourselves to it and try to make the best of our existence within it. Um, and I think there are a lot of individuals here, even the ones who don't explicitly identify as Marxists like Foucault. Um, who who would say that that is, um, for lack of a better word, bullshit? If I can, um, there's a couple, if it's okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, go ahead. There's a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, first is that I can't remember who who said it. But there was this um, devil's advocate critique that um, for Fisher there is this sort of uh, pessimism, um, you know, over determinism and so on um, about you know technology, right, in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think. I think Mark Fisher would probably respond in the same way that Foucault did, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that he, Foucault said that I'm not saying that everything is bad. I'm saying that everything is dangerous, right? Um, and I think that's basically what Fisher would say about uh, technology in particular. And it's really important for Fisher because his uh, uh, writings about post-capitalism um, are very heavy on the idea that what comes after it has to be built upon the things that capitalism made pop, uh, possible. It can't yeah. be a return to pre-capitalism. No, which, um, is why, which is why it's as much a text of kind of post-capitalism that yeah, rather than, than this sort of Marxian or even like uh, Anne Prim style critique where, where there's this desire to go back to some other structure, some other organization, you know, and there, there were a lot of, uh, yeah. complicated and, and problematic assertions made by by some uh, traditional Marxists about the world's prior to the Fordist economy. When I when I read uh, Acid Communism, the the essay mm-hmm. you wrote, one it seemed to me like the the main point of it was just we really just have to put in a lot of effort at thinking what it means to live in a society that's going to come after capitalism. Like thinking about this is not something that's going to be easy, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's the hardest conversation a lot of people have when mm-hmm. they try mm-hmm. to critique capital is kind of the response is always, well, what is your alternative? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen Fisher stress yeah. that in one of his lectures. Yeah. Yeah. And and this, and this, goes, this goes back to a point I made earlier about um, Fisher's um, views on things like, uh, you know, protest, anarchism and things like that, where mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing, right? Where all of that's fine and probably necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right. Um, because uh, what you need is a an alternative to capitalism, which is just as sophisticated. And this why this is why he starts talking about post-capitalist desire. Right. Because if a vision of the future post-capitalism is that um, and I'm still not sure exactly how I feel about this, but, but his idea is that if, if that vision is basically that all of us are dressed in sort of gray overalls because those are the sort of most, you know, um, productively uh, minimal cost and environmental right. or whatever, you know, and Starbucks or whatever, you know, you, you, there's one coffee, there's one TV, whatever, you know, um, 
Fisher's idea there is that if we don't own the idea that um, desire could actually be freed by moving past capitalism, then we're never really going to win. Right. Yeah. Um, as long as capitalism maintains a monopoly over desire, um, there is absolutely and, no hope. And I want to and I want to return this to to the educators in the room um, and to to the aspiring educators too, because I know we have people at different levels of of their educational careers, and I think that's that's fascinating and great, particularly given this, because uh, I think that co- comment of of the the monopoly over desire is like such a loaded concept when we're do when we're trying to have a, a conversation in terms of Duluth. So I kind of want to take it to Craig now, like shoot it over to him, because I think you you've teed up like a perfect concept right. here. You're and I want to isolate it. Um, <laughs> uh, well, actually, I'm really just fascinated about focusing on the, the quote that's painted on the wall about natural order. So I'd like to make a comment and ask a question that brings in this notion of natural order uh, and education and uh, alternatives uh, in terms of a post-capitalist future. Um, <clears throat> in just listening to you folks talk, I, I think about um, how I, I think about the work that I have done on Kafka in my thesis and in his very, very short story before the law, uh, which I've mentioned in, in previous uh, discussions that we have, we have this guy who comes up to the wall of law and immediately presupposes that there that something that we understand to be the law is something natural in some sense, something that's a given. And um, so when we think of uh the natural order, like just talking about billionaires, for example, that they inherently have these abilities that us normal workers don't have, and therefore we should elevate them and so forth. In the same vein, there are certain institutions in our society, such as law, which are brought about uh, through the ruling class and so forth, and made to seem as part of the natural order. So my, my question goes like this, as educators and as thinkers and as revolutionaries and as just human beings who have to live on this planet, what are the ways, uh, what are the sectors in our society, what institutions do we need to pull back the, this veneer of the natural order from? How do we go about educating people uh, when it comes to doing that? And what are the ways that we get people to listen and so that we can get this sort of collective think tank going and perhaps generate some viable alternatives to the nightmare that we're living in now? I think big question. Uh, big question. Those are very good questions. Um, I, I really like critical uh, pedagogy. And right now I'm looking sort of that Foucault is a little bit different. Foucault's um, discourses and his distinction he makes later on in life around the 1980s between pedagogy and psychagogy, where mm-hmm. pedagogy is the dominant form of discourse that we have in schools right now, where it's the transmission of information from teacher to student. And this is very ground in what Mark Fisher would again be saying, you know, sort of the appearance of the natural order. You transmit information as this natural order. And he brings up this idea of caring for the self and psychagogy, which is sort of the experience of thinking through ideas about instead of saying what is truth, as in what ideas are categorized as truth and false, it thinks about what is the idea of truth itself and trying to get students to really engage with those ideas. And it can be tough because a lot of students aren't engaged with critical um, thinking tools, but they can be, and I've seen them be that way. And uh, my hot take from Bocciri, where he talks about the sort of the desire of students is ignored most of the time for the desire of 
you know, the people in charge. I think giving students the ability to share their ideas, sometimes they can get past the prevailing ideology, that natural order, because they're in such a unique state of... So oh, we think, lost you there. I was, You're cutting out, yeah. I was just saying that I think students have a really unique position, especially young students, because I work with preschoolers and elementary, that if they're given critical thinking tools and this ability to have like psychogogy think about what is truth, they come up with really interesting ideas that are beyond what we consider the natural order. They're so out of that ideology that's being put on them all throughout schooling. I think with with the relationship to to um, Foucault pedagogy and subjectivation, I think it, it there needs to be a space where, and obviously this is not possible in unfortunately in every institution in kind of the status quo, whatever that word means now, um, where uh, Foucault has this concept of parasia, which he finds to be crucial. Uh, to ancient Greek discourse, and he kind of he kind of pulls it out of just a handful of texts. Um, obviously, Foucault's interpretations of Hellenism as a as a as a as a scholarly institution is is controversial. Um, but that said, uh, Parasia is this concept of kind of radical truth and and um, speaking candidly and apologizing afterwards. Um, and I think what we need to do is. Uh, provide space for students to to um, to question think radically because I think all too often uh, students are attempting to find themselves uh, they're desiring their own normalizing um, and and I think uh, we have to provide students with spaces for expression which is why you know I found it so liberating in my high school years when things kind of exploded. Um, we had a handful of students who were going around and asking for, for it was uh, a bathroom issue, particularly as it related to trans rights at that institution. And I found it just so remarkable because the same thing had happened at a, at a private institution I was at just a few years ago and it was immediately shut down. Um, but students just, there was just this outburst of, of self-expression and I, it, it fundamentally changed that public school's campus. Um, so what it allowed for was a discussion and, you know, some students exposed that they had not understood these, these ideas, that they had not been exposed to them. And I think what we need to do is to allow certain individuals to find space to, to, to engage with things, not only critically, but radically. Um, even if, you know, other people think you're wrong. And I don't think the role of education should be to create a citizen, um, which is what, Foucault certainly sees in Discipline and Punish the role of education was, the, the, the school to barracks pipeline. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's the way forward. Of course, I'm extraordinarily early <laughs> in my educational career. Uh, I just teach debate students. But, you know, that's at least what I'm hoping for. I want to read a passage from Mark Fisher's book um, that uh, I'd like us to to uh, attack or not attack, but um, formulate a response to. Um, he says this in illustration. I challenged one student about why he always wore headphones in class. He replied it didn't matter because he wasn't actually playing any music. Uh, in another lesson, he was playing music at a very through the headphones without wearing them. When I asked him to switch it off, he replied that he couldn't hear it. 
Why wear the headphones without playing music or play music without wearing headphones? Because the presence of the phones and the ears or the knowledge that the music is playing, even if he couldn't hear it, was a reassurance that the matrix was still there within reach. Besides, in a classic example of interpassivity, if the music was still playing, even if he couldn't hear it, then the player could still enjoy it on his behalf. The use of headphones is significant here. Pop is experienced as, uh, not as something which could have impacts upon public space, but as a retreat into private edipod, consumer bliss, a walling up against the social. And um, just bringing the conversation back around to educators and education. Um, I mean, in my educational career, I've had recalcitrant students who um, made me not only um, react in the classroom, but also rethink my role as um, as a facilitator and as somebody who needs, you know, at least from an institutional standpoint, to impose a modicum of discipline just to keep the the classroom running. Um, what's happening here, and what? Um, can we as educators do to address the dynamic that's going on here? Um, I'm hoping that we can unpack this a little bit. I'm not, really, I'm, not, I'm not an educator, but, you know, I mean, maybe next year I'm, I'm doing a PhD, maybe next year I'll be teaching a little bit, but um, yeah, I think I'll probably better, better leave us to people who actually are teaching at the moment. Yeah. I would rather yeah. leave this to someone who, who is, you know, overseeing a classroom. Um, so, so Craig, to make this cyclical and turn it back to you. Yeah. Like, like, where do you see, and you know, your work is very unique. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with students who are under just an immense amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, the pursuit of pleasure, I would imagine, uh, it just looks very different. It's, it's the same, but it looks very different. The processes are very different than, you know, my pursuit of pleasure in a graduate seminar on, I don't know, Derrida. Um, so if you could speak to, um, how you see this desire to always be plugged in. It reminded me of when I first looked at my copy of Anti-Oedipus like a year and a half ago, where there was um, this um, this unwillingness to be cut off from the group, each person's unwillingness to be cut off. And I see kind of a parallel there with just that little nugget on the back of this paperback copy from Penguin Classics. But I was wondering if you could talk about kind of this this inability to always have the possibility there for mm. pursuing pleasure. Huh. Well, um, just to give those who don't know about my situation a little insight into what I do. Right now, I teach in uh, men who are incarcerated. And um, it, right now, I'm doing a medium security facility. I used to do a maximum security facility. But prior to doing that, I was teaching at a college readiness and uh, intensive English program at a local university here who catered mostly to folks uh, from overseas, um, a large contingent of whom had been uh, very wealthy people, uh, basically the sons and daughters of millionaires and maybe even billionaires in China, um, Saudi oil princes and oil princes from uh, Dubai were not uncommon in my classroom. So really, I saw both extremes uh, of the pole uh, of, of the privilege spectrum, I guess you could say. Um, and it was interesting because, uh, I mean, I had students in both classrooms who were thoroughly engaged and, and really loved what we were doing. But the kind of uh, malaise or ennui 
or this sort of like negative, uh, this depressive tendency definitely was more apparent in the classroom with the students who had privilege. A lot of these students uh, had the uh, disposable income or disposable wealth where they could get the best clothes. They, they, they would have whatever version of the, the iPhone had come out. They would be in class with it the next day. And I mean, it wasn't uncommon to see just ears plugged, hand in a bag of chips, drinking Pepsi um, and just students lacking in sleep. I mean, granted, I did things like this when, when I was in college, but I think now as a teacher and maybe I'm seeing it through this adult lens, but it, it seems in some cases to be at quite an extreme. And um, in my classroom, what I did was uh, I set up a little table. And I said, hey, well, let's do an experiment. I said, let's just move our phones over here. We'll just keep them on the table for the remainder of the class so that we can work on the worksheets and things like that. And the students came up to me afterwards and they said, they said to me, I'm so glad you took my phone away from me. And it was just very interesting because it, it's almost as if they required my authority in order for uh, them to be separated from, from their addiction. And which to me... Um, makes my classroom like this little microcosm where um, me as the authority figure is the person who intervenes in uh, with the person uh, who is addicted. And now I'm, I'm basically doing the same thing at the other end of the spectrum, but the addictions I'm dealing with now are crystal meth, heroin, and what have you, uh, these, these folks that I'm teaching in the prison. And it's, it's just interesting that me as, as the teacher, when I'm teaching in the class, what I'm doing is not only do I represent, but I actualize a certain kind of authority uh, that conducts this intervention with the addiction. And it makes my job hard because that's really what I, I don't want to be doing. I, I want to be teaching the content, but it seems like education, at least in these two disparate venues that I've been working in, have been about um, sort of conducting these these interventions for students. And actually, just in the course of me talking about it, was I able to sort of draw the parallel between, wow, I'm intervening in two forms of addiction, just different kinds of addiction uh, at different ends of the spectrum. And, and it seems that there is a demand among students. Um, they, they want to break from this cycle. Um, what, yeah, what's interesting, what too, though, is there, there are all of these kind of very interesting takes um, from various publications now about how digital minimalism, uh, you know, creating a work environment uh, that that is free of these distractions. I guess distractions is put to put it lightly, but free of these distractions nonetheless is a kind of a privilege of a particular class. Um, you know, minimal technologies, these cell phones, uh, these note takers, there's a, there's a keyboard out there now that's just a word processor with a mechanical keyboard. It's $400. Um, and that's the whole thing, right? But yeah. that's the whole point is that, um, we're, we're sold a product, which in the first place, um, gets us addicted, yes. right? Um, this, this, you know, this internet matrix, which, which it talks about. And then afterwards, once we can't, you know, get on without it, um, capitalism sells us another product to try and get us off it, right? <laughs> um, it's a constant cycle of recuperation. Um, what will happen is, I imagine that if people do move over to these new, you know, uh, uh, minimalist phones or whatever, um, that other problems will emerge from that, to which new 
products which you can buy on the marketplace will emerge to try and solve. Um, well, can, I, can I make a... I'm, I'm, hesitant, I'm hesitant to I'm say hesitant. that uh, um, it's necessarily a response to minimalism to people not wanting the addiction. Uh, minimalism has always been something that's been more afforded to the bourgeoisie than anyone else. The classic example is uh, all of the design and accoutrements around building a house very, very some time ago. It was expensive to have, you know, gold-plated anything, shiny anything, light fixtures, all kinds of stuff. And then uh, upon the industrialization, those which used to be luxury uh, you know, symbols of your house suddenly became mass produced. And so what became in vogue was minimalism in response to that, which was really the reality that the only way you could afford to have minimalist lighting, which was recessed and deep and difficult to put in, was to be able to be the one who was affordable. You know, you could afford that because you had wealth. And it's uh, it's more of a response to, oh, this is now so deep, capital needs to create something else in order to respond to the minimalism, uh, in order to continue to have something that's a high-end luxury good. And as we're seeing, minimalism is becoming cheaper and cheaper for people to have. And uh, other other design patterns are starting to emerge that are taking its place in the bourgeoisie world. Can I make a contribution here as well? Um, I, I work in with young people in a sort of para-educational context. Like I, I've worked in community centers, after-school programs for like the last 10 years. But specifically in the last five years, I've worked in homeless shelters from direct access off the street homeless shelters to temporary housing services, move through services for young people. I'm actually in the UK now uh, from the States and, and I work in that industry. And I guess oh, this cool. is sort of connecting to my earlier sort of issue with like that passage is a perfect example because on the one hand, I completely identify with it. I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to a young person and I realize that they're actually on the phone, you know, and I'm like, wait, I thought I thought we were just talking and they're like, oh, no, my, you know, my boyfriend's just in the background. We just kind of like we're hanging out. I was like, yeah, but I thought this was a one on one conversation or hearing about TikTok things or Instagram, you know, seeing the way they aspire to be Instagram influencers. And it all feels really creepy and manipulative and I think that critique's there. It's just that the part, there's a part of me, there's a memento mori that I've always tried to keep as a child of the kind of like internet revolution and that, you know, all that era where it just feels very easy to fall into this thing of like, oh, look at how this, this is affecting their ability to focus. And it is true. Like I've, as a, in a teaching context, in activities context, I've had to do this. I've had to do the same thing myself with, you know, okay, we're going to put away all the phones. We're going to do those things. But there, it almost feels like a conservative impulse, like an Abe Simpson kind of get off my lawn kind of yeah, to say that, that, you know, this is why, why can't you just concentrate when it's like, well, if I think back, yes, I am the, I am the mongrel product of these weird, messed up Frankenstein mm. machines. But at the same time, I wouldn't be who I was if I didn't have the the freedom of exploration, of piracy, of the of the mm. internet, of exploring Wikipedia, of arguing with people on forums, of being exposed to pornography at way too young of an age. So there's something where I, I hear these <laughs> moments, and I'm not. I don't want to be pedantic or get lost in niceties, but also like, couldn't we also read that as a as a moment of resistance on the part of the student as well? Like, there's there's all these other questions of like your role as a disciplinarian in the. I think Ellen Rooney called it the semi private room, which I always love that phrase of, of the classroom of like, just not to demonize and not to get fixated on this, like even the thing he brings up this big imaginary, the other person, this supposedly ignorant subject that isn't actually in the room. That is, we project all of these 
you know, foibles onto. And it's like, I mean, I, I know the young people I work with now, their lives under, in the UK, universal credit, the benefit system, the violence yeah. that they're exposed yeah. to is, is mm. so astronomical that to, to sort of like, mm. you know, lecture them about like, well, you know, you're really obsessed with Instagram influencers. It's like, it's such a complex social existence that they live that, you know, that it speaks almost, it's more to the point of what I think Mark Fisher is trying to say about the deeper fissures of capitalism than, yeah, these kind of what to me are the kind of just logistical things about how do we use this technology? I don't know. That, yeah, that's kind of where that original that point came of from. Reflexive sort of, because whenever anybody actually critiques capital, right, there's always this sea of kind of American conservative personalities who say like, oh, well, you're doing it on your iPhone. I think some of that translates over to like critiques of uh, surveillance capitalism, where someone says like, hey, you know, I, I think there's there's an issue where, uh, you know, we're our, even our free time and our, and our, you know, unfree time is, is capitalized on and we're being pulled away from the certain for the th things that we find kind of personal value in. Um, and then there's just the sea of people who say, well, haha, ha, are you saying technology bad? Ha ha. Well, no. Right. It's more complicated than that. But yeah. And, and, and again, like it's really, I think it's really important, like bring it back to I, I genuinely think the best way of understanding what Mark Fisher is doing is to cash out again in Foucault's terms. He's not saying everything is bad. He's saying that everything is dangerous, right? And I think, um, and I think in many ways that's a response to kind of the CCRU and the way that they saw the, the, this, you know, in uh, this concept and in its incipients, the kind of internet as this possible uh, vehicle of liberation and it turned into this hyper centralized uh, system of control and of, of frankly of production um, <laughs> this area was just yeah. three people right yeah kind of <laughs> uh, but yeah and and uh, you know Nick Land taking this kind of weird leap from from uh, Deleuzean left-wing critique of, of academia to this kind of austere right-wing you know neo-fascism so modes of tech uh, modes of control institutions and technologies they can go all sorts of different ways they can develop in all different manners um and i think that is yeah specifically foucauldian assertion i think um i like how bring up this idea of like how it comes to be i wanted to point back towards the book it's a bit more forward on page 73 um Gray brings up Spinoza, which I, I love, and they said Spinoza shows that far from being an aberrant condition, addiction is the standard state for human beings for reactive and repetitive behaviors by frozen images of themselves or the world. I think this brings back, again, just how it's just sort of a situation that we find ourselves in where, like you're saying, even when we get back from work, we don't actually rest in the normal sense. Most of us, I know I do rest by going on our phone seeing what we missed that day and again are still constantly connected but not like Foucault would say um it's not bad necessarily um but it is dangerous and it just sort of comes from this sort of society that we're in that we're forced or comes these habitual reactive habits as the nose would put it and i don't necessarily think it's specifically from technology i just think technology sort of accelerate its ability for everyone to be able to have access to it. Whereas before we say the opium trade, only really rich or certain people would get it. But now it's this sort of 
cyberspatial addictiveness. Everyone can get it, even our students, even, you know, my preschoolers outside of school. Determine if they have it all day or not. And that's very difficult because under capitalism, both parents have to work all the time. And even if you're working minimum wage, especially here in Hawaii, you have to work two or three minimum wage jobs. So what are you supposed to do? You can't pay for childcare. So these reactive tendencies that Spinoza talks about are just sort of ingrained in our experience. And I think technology is a very easy way to leave this reactiveness. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily because of technology, which is very easily done. Yeah, and, and I think I have a question directed again at Craig. Go for uh, it. To bring this back to Deleuze, wow. I think it's around page 180 in that range of D&G's uh, D anti-Oedipus, wow. where the assertion is finally made that the socius is inscriptive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's leading up to that assertion, and then that sentence is finally dropped. It's 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 the the socius is inscriptive. Can uh, you maybe speak to the role that technology plays in this process now? Because now that you know, it's no longer uh, if we've moved from from the 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 punishment, the pain of society, and the eye that extracts pleasure from it to this inscription. Can I? Uh, can you speak to a little bit to get a better understanding of what inscription would mean in this, uh, as it relates to the utilization of technology by individual users? Oh, I think one of the easy ways um, is is what we've already covered, especially with young people, uh, mm -hmm. is is how social capital is really built up now around uh, these these uh, the apps and modes of technology, the whole TikTok phenomenon, Instagram. Um, you know, the, the idea that, for example, somebody posted this on Instagram last night. Oh, can you believe that he posted a picture with her and that sort of mm -hmm. thing? And really, that becomes a training ground, um, you know, for the, the technology going forward. I think we in, in going back to this concept of a natural order, I think the the notion of technology, it, the real technology that we're using is is presupposed as it's a given in our environment. And without it, we, we feel naked and mm -hmm. dislocated and in uh, a, a really important way. And, and it could have impacts on you, professionally speaking, if you didn't. Um, uh, get on, uh, you know, a social media platform. I remember when I deleted my Facebook. I mm -hmm. felt a visceral reaction to that that maybe lasted for two or three days because yeah. Yeah. you lose that that kind of connectivity. And, and I'm sure that some of you had a very similar experience uh, with that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I th yeah. So one of the weird things um, I found, so I'm probably one of the younger, youngest people here, I think. So I'm, I'm 24, uh, 20, 20, 23, I'm 24 next month. And what I remember is that when I was at school here in England, um, when I was in uh, secondary school, um, I it, it was pretty rare for anyone to have a smartphone. Um, you might have maybe like an old like Nokia or something just to you know text your parents if you were late, or whatever. I don't know. Um, but my younger brother, he's he's three years younger than me. Um, within those three years, it went from my experience of almost no one except for the really really rich kids having a smartphone to literally everyone having a smartphone right um that's all it took was that three years um in our experience and that's why i found i found that really interesting um and i think one of the reasons why uh this book capitalist realism speaks to 
a lot of people is that for some people they will identify with that educator side of the uh, the account right of seeing these students you know not being able to concentrate and so on right um for me i remember reading this for the first time probably four four and a half years ago something like that um and he talks about the student who wants to know what nietzsche said right but can't quite concentrate enough to just sit down and read it and doesn't understand that part of the point of Nietzsche is that you have to struggle with it, right? Um, I remember reading that and yeah, thinking... The difficulty is Nietzsche. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I, I remember sitting down and reading that and going, that's me, right? Um, mm-hmm. As someone who was, I think, probably 17, maybe when I read this book for the first time, maybe, eight, maybe just 18, um, that I was this person who and still am in many ways, I find it extremely difficult to um, completely disconnect from this, you know, massively, uh, you know, this, this in, you know, information complex, disconnect from that and, you know, sit down and wrestle with a difficult book. I, I still find that difficult. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's an interesting and, and, and quite influential book is people will identify with different parts of it. You know, I think there's probably quite a few people. I imagine there's not, there's at least one other person I'm sure in this server who um, are like me, and they sat down and read that at a fairly young age and thought, you know what, that's yeah, that's I, me, right? I read it at a at a slightly older age. <laughs> uh, I was I was in my first year of undergrad, um, and and I read that section about Nietzsche, and I was like, oh my god, like yeah, I yeah, can't right? stand reading these texts that I love. It's this remarkable. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I do this too. Like I, I, I cheat to lose a little bit where, where it, let's say like I'm on the first chapter of difference and repetition and I, I just want to go for something easier. Like I just want to leave yeah. and I don't want to work through it. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's why it's so, so interesting. Yeah. It's not just on this thing, which I think a lot of us actually live and experience in our day to day lives. And that's why I think it's so interesting. I, you know, and I, and I think, Two, that, that we're conditioned to want sort of simple answers, which then feeds back into capitalist realism. We're like, I'm scouring the internet to, to have someone else give me an interpretation of text. I, I, so that I don't TLDR, to, right? Yeah, so that I don't have to interpret it myself, so that I don't have to come away with it uh, with my own understanding, so that I can just simply assert the affect of being someone that's read this book, right? I want to be someone that's read it, but I don't want to be someone that's that's Reddit. I've been attacked in, in Deleuze discussion groups um, where, where I just said, why don't you just read anti-Oedipus <laughs> right? Right. rather yeah. than going around yeah. and finding interpretations that are right. Like what, what other books I'm like, just stay in there, just keep going at it. And, yeah. and I get it like, I, because I committed the same sort of uh, sin in the beginning, which was kind of circumambulating the text, looking at Ronald Bogue, <clears throat> looking at the Holland text. But then when it came right down to it, it's like, oh, I just need to pay attention for fucking 20 minutes. 
and just read this book. Because I can promise you that even if like you come away with an interpretation that's quote unquote wrong, right? Like whatever, like let's say this, the majority of this chat will disagree with you there. There is no other kind of intellectual high than when something clicks in Antiochus. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's such a creative moment where, like, I can't help myself but but write stuff down. And the payoff, the, the payout is so large uh, for me. But I have to constantly remind myself of that. Um, this kind of brings yeah. me back around to what we were talking about, like the the uh, depressive hedonia and, and that sort of thing. I, I want to tie it in here. Which is, um, I think what's repressed in our time is a certain kind of repose. It's almost as if we're demanding of a kind of uh, self-asceticism, like, hey, you, you know, I mean, it's here I'm putting the, the answer firmly on the individual. But I mean, as a society, it seems like it would benefit us to create a space where people can learn to do things like a sustained engagement with the text. And that's just really encouraged Uh, and, you know, encouraging disconnect at a larger level. But that means, of course, dismantling capitalism, right? Ultimately, in order to get, you know, to the the sort of uh, uh, to get the effective benefits anyway, that that we're that I think we're asking for here uh, within our discussion. But um, anyway, that's my my little piece on that. Can, can I just chuck one last thing in there? There's something I've been waiting to. I wanted to say yeah. before we call this, you know, call this off because we've been going for a while now. But there's a, there's a really for me one of the most important and very short passages of capitalist realism. Um, I think it's page. Uh, I didn't say on my copy, but okay. So he says capitalism is what is left when beliefs have collapsed at the level of ritual or symbolic elaboration and all that is left is the consumer spectator trudging through the ruins and the relics yeah and so i i have i have thought about this i've written about this in the past i think that's one of the most um thought-provoking elements of 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 this book and i think for me, that's when I realized as someone uh, educated in a kind of analytic oriented university, I realized that all this like moral philosophy stuff we were, we were learning about, you know, uh, Kant and deontology and utilitarianism, all of that had itself become commodified. That essentially all you were doing were walking up and down uh, shopping aisles and trying to work out, okay, which one of these products looks shiny, um, which one of them, you know, suits my personality whatever it's sort of the ultimate aestheticization of even ethics right and all you're really doing is you're walking around um as a consumer being marketed to by products or a spectator walking around watching the history that used to exist but no longer does right and it's it's very it's, it's quite a depressing um pessimistic um thought but at least for me subjectively um very little else I've read has come closer um, closer to um, some of the, the the sort of affective things which have pushed me towards reading people like Deleuze and Guattari. Um, I think this is the kind of crux of what motivated Mark Fisher and his obsession with you know the new, the different music and culture. Um, this is kind of the encapsulation of it. This this little sentence, I think. I mean, I I, I can relate to that. Um... You know, for example, my experience of being here in the group with you folks right now, and uh, I mean, I'm really excited to talk about this and hear what everybody has to say. But you know, I don't know who my neighbors are, and I live in I live in the city of Los Angeles, and yeah, um, I have this kind of default 
where, you know, like where I'm just darkly reticent, kind of in the observer status, uh, kind of feel the weight of the world kind of bearing down until I have a kind of moment like this where I engage with you folks or read a book or, or, or do something like that. <clears throat> Can I come out of it? But it seems as if there's a, a force that's just alienating me unless I'm proactive about sort of fending that off. And, and to me, that's one of the ways that I experience, um, you know, some of the, the darker emotions that are highlighted here in the Yeah, I think, I think fighting the, the more reclusive tendencies that uh, people find uh, often beneficial uh, to social structures like ours um, you know, cause we live in a world where gregar- like social gregariousness is rewarded, but then what needs to underlie it or underline it or underwrite it rather is also this ability to, to engage reclusively with your labor, uh, and to, to bring out a particular product. Um, and you can't have one without the other. Um, so I think it creates this sort of really weird balancing act that everyone has to operate under. Um, and that is, that is actually impossible. Um, so I, I, I totally understand that. Why don't we do yeah. this? We, we have about 20 minutes left. Um, we're we're going to take questions from the audience. They can type them in. We can have people on mute. Uh, just try to involve some more people in the discussion, make, uh, make this place a home for some people to uh, express themselves. So if you have a question or something, go ahead and write it in the comments or just say that you'd like to be unmuted. And I'm just going to unmute people at random or maybe brooks can do that too um go ahead and submit now see what i can do okay not a lot of people volunteering yes yeah um it's it's somebody Somebody maybe one question i regarding regarding one passage i really found interesting in this book was regarding liberal liberal communism right kind of tongue twister for me it seems but to what extent does this notion of liberal liberal communism affect the possibility of revolution and when i say this concept uh fisher connected with bill gates and soros right and um yeah so so what do you guys think about this does it hinder or it, it's almost like a um, a a tongue-in-cheek moniker for yeah. Like, it comes from Zizek. Yeah, yeah. So it, it comes from Zizek. So it's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's under quotation marks. But what I really f- like about this concept is the sheer versatility that it imp- that it discovers in capitalism, right? Because as he explains, the the power of this concept lies in the quick opposition that can be made and the superficial flexibility. And this is, these are his work, his words, flexibility, nomadism and spontaneity, right? Which are of course superficial. And I think from my reading of this, uh, not really, not really truthful, right? But, but it's so hard to oppose them. And this is where this versatility of capitalism really lies in, in practice in one of the many examples. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the, the use of that, that word is, is the ability, it's almost uh, more of a language position uh, that particular institutions, industries, and individuals can appropriate language. So 
uh, one of the great uses of the concept of liberal communism exists in another text about Deleuze that's contemporary called Dark Deleuze by Andrew Kalb, where he discusses uh, capitalism's ability to incorporate um, the the language of more communalist um, oriented ideologies into <clears throat> capitalist institutions. Uh, so the, the liberal communist is someone who kind of emulates the political affect of the communist, right? With the way that they engage with, with uh, their institution, whether it be their business or uh, I don't know, their house seat. But, you know, they're always, um, they're always going to uh, reify capital, but just with the sort of aesthetical orientation towards, you know, communal living, uh, c- company ownership, like public ownership. So like a UPS driver owns a little bit of stock in the company that's like minute, but that means that it's, you know, it's, it's public ownership. It's a co-op, but it's not really. And I think that would be considered an, an example of kind of liberal communist politics. Right. Yeah, exactly. Here's a question from the audience. Um, a says, I've heard that the critique that a lot of Fisher's work, including capitalist realism, are about a specific time, in particular the early 2010s or late 2000s. Do others in the chat think think capitalist realism is still important or relevant? So um, what's your position? I definitely do. I, I think when I came to this reading, uh, I, I actually, I only had found out about Mark Fisher. I kind of came to the left late in life and I found out about Mark Fisher when he died. And, um, I didn't read this book in particular until after I had read Deleuze. And I wish I had had this when I was like 20 years old. It, it probably would have been, you know, more transformative than it had been to me. Um, in terms of the notion of capitalist realism still existing, you know, what I see now, it somewhat relates to uh, uh, the notion of uh, Carl uh, Polyani's notion of the double movement. I think in our society, at least in the United States, we have just this push and pull between two right wings, which are the liber- you know the liberal Democrats, the Joe Bidens of the world, and and Donald Trump. And it seems like we're just going to oscillate between those two poles ad infinitum until somebody disrupts it. And I don't know what that looks like. Um, I do know, however, I'm always looking for cracks in the edifice. I think uh, what Will said is important, that we should uh, always be expanding our notion of critique. And uh, I always bring in Mark Fisher when um, I have these sort of thoughts. I actually, I think that's interesting, but I actually have a couple of reservations on Mark Fisher's thought, because it seems to me, I mean, I think we should discuss this a bit, but it seems to me that his idea of reflexive impotence makes him unable to actually support a revolution that is authentically anti-capitalist, if all we're allowed to do is protest individual things, you know? So I'm interested in how we should actually go around protesting capitalism in general, if so many people just want to protest things in general without being specific. I think so. Matt is the one that that, mm-hmm. that could answer this, but I'll just I'll just quickly provide. Uh, I think it again is moving in a direction of post capital, not not this like I'm going to use the word regressive wrong, not to look back to a politics of 1965, mm-hmm. not to look at what Marcuse was saying to students when he toured the United States, but instead to attempt, attempt to look forward to in, in like in, in the essay, Acid communism to, to do the hard work of imagining a world without 
capitalism that is not fundamentally formulated on the manifesto, that is not overly reliant on the second volume of capital. Um, it, it's, it's this desire to, to move kind of beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's correct. Um, I'd bring it back <clears throat> sorry, to the, um, the, the critique of folk politics that you find in um, Inventing the Future uh, by Sir Chicken Williams. Um, mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out a, a way of really just sort of briefly explaining what their critique is there. Um, I actually found a, a, way, a way of explaining this. Um, and basically, folk, folk politics, what they call folk politics, um, prioritizes two things, um, a kind of temporal and spatial immediacy, right? Um, it's a protest or it's an occupation or whatever, right? And it's spatially immediate. You're right there with almost a face-to-face encounter with everyone else, right? And it's temporarily immediate because uh, you're all there at the same time. What if everyone turned up to, you know, to the, to the protest, right? Um, but it also fears, you know, there's this article I found that says uh, it, it fears complexity, right? It fears um, organization, structure, verticality. Um, and so what you find is something like the Occupy Wall Street movement, which, you know, wasn't bad per se, but in, in their reluctance to uh, articulate any kind of um, specific critique of the financial global financial system and in its refusal to uh, adhere to any kind of structural um, uh, or to, to any kind of coherent structure, um, it ended up being, frankly, completely um, useless. It, it didn't, didn't actually do anything, didn't achieve anything. Right, um, and so I think Mark Fisher is broadly on that, on that, on the side of that kind of critique. Um, that um, there's nothing wrong per se with uh, protest activism and so on. These are great ways of getting people involved, getting them thinking, getting them active in political life. But it has to go beyond that. I think for someone like Fisher, it has to also involve a level of um, deeply sophisticated uh, theorization about what post-capitalism looks like in a way which, uh, and desire is a really big thing for him, which, which, so it, capitalism can't maintain a monopoly on desire. Um, because again, going back to it, like, you know, if, and, if and I think, and sorry, just, you, to, got, just to quickly sorry. interject and then I'll let you continue. And I think that, that, that that's essential in understanding why his position that Occupy can't, like a, a future protest can't merely be a broad critique of capital that says what we need to do is look to the social theory of the 19th century um, and, yeah. and be satisfied. Um, it's, it's going to take uh, a, a, a theoretical uh, leap uh, to steal yeah. more concepts from Sartre. Yeah, and, and it, but, it, but it also cannot um, um, remain on the level of a moral critique. Um, and in this sense, I think I I agree with the kind of st- quite string- stringently structuralist Marxism of someone like Althusser, um, because as long as you rely on the moral critique of capitalism that you know uh, these bankers are evil and greedy, and that these uh, politicians are self-interested or whatever, um, as long as you rely on that level, you never really move beyond um, beyond capitalism. You're still stuck at the level of thinking about. Well, what would it take to put good people 
um, in, in these positions, right? Um, whereas a whole point of, of, in my opinion, of, of a kind of Marxist analysis, and I think this is what you find in this strange kind of Marxism of someone like Fisher or or, or, or uh, Shanshik Williams, is let's understand the way in which structures of power and politics and, and the economy and so on produce these um, these results in the first place. Right. It's not about individual agency. It's not about individual morality. Um, and as long as you stay there, you're just engaging in liberalism, really. Um, I think that's a sort of position that um, Fisher and many people who still draw a lot of influence from him, sort of um, sort of left accelerationists and so on, um, would, that's the sort of position I think they, they would hold to. Um, it, it, as long as the critique is just a moral one, you're going to get nowhere. Cool. That's kind of funny because that reflects a lot of the kind of paralyzed lefts, remainer lefts issues in the outcome out yeah. yeah. of the Brexit vote where there was this sort of yeah. vague yeah. idea of like, we just need to kind of make nice people in charge of the European Union and then everything will be fine. And yeah, you know, right? it's, yeah. it's very sad and very, we don't need to go into it now, but I found it very sad as an outsider living in this country that we got to this moment and there's all this like tail chasing of like, how do we get here? And oh, it was always Corbyn. He's such an asshole. This is how this happened. And you're like, well, but you also had no understanding of the institution that you were dealing with and you refused to engage with it for years and years and years. And then you're surprised that people feel, yeah, it was completely run through by racism and xenophobia, all those ways yeah, of sure. taking advantage yeah. of. But but there is no analysis, partially a symptom of our defeats on the left over generations of the EU as a neoliberal institution that has, you know, laid waste to Southern Europe and other societies. So it's, it's very interesting in terms of that whole theme that we've talked about with Mark Fisher of the inability to imagine an alternative where it actually has sort of become this thing where I've talked to people, colleagues who are extreme, extremely close on the left, but there's this sort of wall that they hit where they're like, but how could we, but, but what kind of, how do we have inter-European solidarity if there's not such a thing as the EU? And it, not that I'm, I'm not advocating, you know, just abolishing this thing out of hand, but I was, I was sort of like, this is so strange because that, you know, it's like we've forgotten that there was such a thing as the international or the many internationals or the, you know, there's the Ventotain, I don't know how to pronounce it, manifesto from after World War II of sort of a socialist vision of Europe. Like there's, there's only one kind of EU that could exist and it's this one. And if you propose anything else, you're, asking for the downfall of all society. So yeah, it's it's so yeah. So. And also just one last thing that I'll promise I'll, I promise I'll stop talking, but one, one last plug for why I think people really need to read, um, uh, Carl Schmidt, um, in a, in a critical way, just to be clear, um, is that this is one of the things he, he was saying back in the twenties is that the problem, one of the problems with liberalism is that because it's so effectively, um, destroys any distinctively political, um, uh, experience of, of, of the world, any kind of political subjectivity, um, what happens is it ends up being replaced by some mixture of um, morals and morality and economism, right? And that's what you see in, in liberal democracy today, where firstly, every issue becomes um, both moral and economic, and there's some sort of trade-off between the two, right? And then because it, it relies on this tension um, between morality and economics, um, if if there's disagreement about you know the action, you know whether it's moral or immoral, um, every person disagrees isn't just uh, wrong. 
they are an enemy in in a really huge and meaningful sense, right? Um, if they are hugely morally wrong, then he says he predicted in late twenties that that you would see huge wars which would not end until you know the destruction of anyone. Um, you know, who, who disagreed. And in, in one case, he was right. And, you know, of course, thank God we destroyed the Nazis, right? But but what he did predict in liberal democracy today is there's, the discourse becomes both moral and economic at the same time, um, a constant tension between the two, right? And that's what we're reduced to right now, right? Is, is the critique of capitalism which um, uh, oscillates between moralistic, right, which is completely ineffectual because it doesn't actually um, undermine it at all, or economistic, in which case you lose the kind of human element of, of experiences. And I don't know what the answer is there. Uh, but he's, you know, individually awful person. And, you know, you have to read him very carefully and very critically. But I think there's there's a lot of things he does touch on there, which I think speak to speak to where we are right now. Okay, any uh, other last thoughts before we wrap this up? Will or Andrew, would you like to? Uh, I think I just want to say that, that, that these sorts of discussions are working well. Um, I think what, what Fisher does and the way he engages with Deleuze and brings him into the realm of, of cultural criticism makes Deleuze accessible. I'm going to put accessible in quotation marks. Um, and I think it's important. I think Mark Fisher's work is important um, in that sense, in that this is something that um, that you can engage with without having to carry the entire burden of someone's corpus on your shoulders. Um, because whenever a cultural theorist says the word body without organs, right there, a lot of the times they're going to bite off more than they can chew. And the careful way with which uh, Fisher engages with Foucault, engages with Deleuze and moving forward um, with those, with those concepts is, is, is very, 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 very careful. So I think, yeah, I just wanted to close out with that. Okay, sounds good. How about Andrew or Parkbench? You guys are active. Did you want to finish with any comments? Well, then I'll just say that I thought this was a fantastic discussion. The energy was great. Um, the content was just on point. I think the mentions of Zizek, Jordan Peterson were expected. The, the one person I wanted to bring in was Marie Kondo and... Uh, you know, what is it? Uh, sparking joy by throwing things out in your house. I think Mark Fisher, I wish he was around to write an essay on that. <laughs> Maybe uh, we can yeah. write an essay yeah. on that. You know, like, I just want, I'm just putting ideas out there for uh, future uh, talks that we have. Um, we, maybe we're going to go into that at some point, but um, you guys were great. We hope to see you guys back here again. The next time that we have something scheduled, I think is on Tuesday. Uh, it might we're be six o'clock tonight. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, so six o'clock. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, so six o'clock uh, Pacific Standard Time. We're going to have just the, the weekly wrap up. It'll just be about, what, like an hour or so? Yeah, or longer or whatever. It's going to be basically drinking and just shooting the shit and random stuff rather than this deep, just difficult and nightmarish discussions. Yeah. I'm going to go ride my bike with my wife right now. Yes. I'm going to awesome. go play with my son. Awesome. awesome. All right. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to go ride that bike, baby. <laughs> oh, my thank you, God. Thank you, everybody, for this, this awesome discussion. This, this is wonderful. Thank you all very much. All right. Take care.